When students first come to university, there's much excitement. But much of this excitement is about the degree and the qualification, but it's also about the experience. Today, we're going to be talking to Director of Student Experience at CQ University, Chris Verrar. Hi, Chris, and welcome to The Grapevine. Hi, Priscilla. Thanks for having me. Student experience. Can you tell us what was your student experience like? Oh, how far back do you want to go? Well, let's start with uni and yeah, then we can go back uni. further later. Okay. <laughs> Am I able to mention a com- competitive university oh, on the air? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I did my undergrad at Griffith University in Brisbane and um, my student experience, I would say, was fairly transactional. Uh, I, was, I was very academically inclined, so I didn't find the work a huge challenge. Um, but I was on a campus where it was a, a basically a new campus. It had only been open about 12 months. And so there wasn't a lot of, I guess, social infrastructure on site. So apart from, you know, sort of meeting up with friends before class and having a chat, there wasn't a lot to do on campus. And so I was very much in and out, I think. I, I had a job at the same time. I was working, trying to get as many hours as I could. Um, so just juggling that, juggling study, juggling a relationship with a girl. Um, so my, my student experience was probably not as rich as what you might see in some of those uh, American college movies. Um, I did go back to study later in life, um, only in the last five years. I, I did a Master of Business Administration um, with another university, and that was a different student experience. Um, it was um, definitely more catered to a mature cohort and a professional cohort, and it was very much a curated student experience. So it wasn't so much about me hanging around on campus, um, you know, at the uni bar, that sort of thing. It was more about um, furthering my professional connections, building my networks. And, and I found that a really positive student experience. But it was a little bit niche. I, I don't think it was the general experience that most students experience. So. Awesome. Just going back a little bit, can you tell us where you grew up and what family life was like for Mm. you as a kid? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in a part of South East Queensland called Logan. Uh, Logan is a city just outside of Brisbane. It's kind of like a residential city um, that, you know, a lot of people work in Brisbane and um, it's probably... uh, a bit more of a lower socioeconomic demographic in Logan. Um, a lot of uh, immigrants, working class people. So um, it was a it was a pretty good childhood. Um, I have a younger brother and a younger sister, so I'm the oldest. Um, mum and dad were both immigrants. So uh, mum was born in England to a Russian mum and a Scottish dad, and uh, my dad was born in the Netherlands. So all of my grandparents had, uh, you know, unusual accents and things like that and um, different cultural influences in my life from a very young age. Uh, but mum and dad had grown up in Australia. They both came to Australia around the age of 10. Um, and so I guess we had sort of parents who had that sort of mixed experience of kind of having a foot in, in both worlds. Um, but, yeah, it was great. I, I really I really enjoyed that. Um and yeah, went to school in the local area, um, moved around schools a little bit. My parents were both school teachers, primary school teachers, uh, specifically preschool, which I guess is now called prep. Um, but they usually put us into school wherever they happened to be teaching at the time. So, um, Was that interesting, having your parents right yeah, there? Yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, it was interesting. It, <laughs> there, were, there were some times where... Um, 
Uh, there was one occasion, I was a pretty well-behaved child, I must admit, but there was one occasion where we had a, a relief teacher for the day and he didn't like something I'd said. I was a little bit of a chatty kid in class and he'd sent me to the principal's office and I sort of went, oh, stuff that, I'm not going. And I just walked down to my mum's classroom and hung out there for a few hours. I, I'm not sure what she said to me. Memory's a little fuzzy on that. But, you know, it was sort of, I, I, I sort of abused that privilege a little bit, I think. <laughs> but, it, but it was good. It was, um, it actually gave me probably a bit of an insight into the inner workings of a school and the education system um, that a regular kid who might come and go just during the day might not get. So, you know, I saw how the principals and deputy principals interacted. You know, I got to sit in the back corner of the, the staff meeting eating a packet of chips while the adults talked and that sort of thing. So it, it possibly in a, in a very unconscious way, it probably gave me some early inclinations of what the inner workings of academia or education administration were like, yeah. And uh, you went to high school and you had ambitions of what? Yeah, high school. Um, so interesting. I, I went to uh, what I would probably categorise as a pretty rough high school, uh, a state school, where kids didn't really have ambitions of going to university. It wasn't really high on the cards for a lot of my peers. So I think because my parents had gone to what was teacher's college at the time, um, you know, they sort of had more of a value of education than, than some parents at the school might have. And so that probably did put me on a pathway of thinking, I need to go and study something. I'm just not really sure what it is. Um, I would say of my graduating class, there's maybe, you could probably count on two hands, the kids that went to university and a lot didn't. So for me um, to go into university was probably a big deal in some ways. Um, I I was pretty good academically, as I said before. Um, I didn't really try too hard, which is not not very good to say, but uh, but I didn't. And um, I really excelled in English. English was always my forte. And I remember being sort of halfway through year twelve and and saying to my dad, I don't really know what I want to do. I think I had the QTAC guide in hand, which was a hard copy at the time. Flipping through, looking at all these options, um, and I remember him saying, you know, you should do maybe you should do journalism. You seem to excel at, at communications and, and particularly written communications. So I thought, well, that, that sounds interesting. So put my, my preferences down um, and ended up getting accepted into a Bachelor of Communication. I think it was my fourth preference. Uh, I didn't get a good enough OP to go to some of those um, better sort of journalism courses, but I uh, did my Bachelor of Communication, um, which was a major in uh, journalism and marketing. Um, the marketing side didn't overly resonate with me, I think. The journalism side did. So that that was sort of a, a bit of an accidental pathway for me, I think. Yeah. Where did that lead? Did you actually work as a journalist? I did, actually. Yeah, I did. Um, so my first year out of university, um, I didn't have a job to, to fall back on straight away. I was working at McDonald's during university. Um, I was a little bit classier. I worked at the Mac Cafe. Uh, I was a barista, so a McBarista. So, um, yep, serving up coffees, and uh, that was that was good fun. Um, funnily enough, I didn't actually drink coffee at the time, and in hindsight, I, I think about all the awful tasting coffees I must have served to the public over a few years because I had no idea what 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 a good coffee tastes like. Um, so, yeah, um, what was your question again, Priscilla? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, yeah, how'd you end up in journalism? Journalism, yeah. yeah. So um, finished university and basically I had a my sister-in-law, my, my now sister-in-law, um, so my, my then girlfriend, now wife's sister, um, she was about 10 years older than us and she worked in HR 
and I remember coming to her and sort of saying, how do I get a job, basically? Um, so that was my university careers advice. She uh, basically, we talked about my ambitions. I wanted to be a, a newspaper journalist. Um, we put together a whole bunch of resumes, probably about 100 resumes, and just sent them off, uh, you know, as was the style at the time. No email, just off to, to various editors at, at papers around different parts of Queensland. Um, I had done some work experience at university off my own bat. Um, there wasn't really a work integrated learning component as such uh, with the course. Actually, there was one. I, I did work at a, a street press magazine called Scene in Brisbane, which was basically like a gig listings paper that you know talked about all the upcoming concerts and club very gigs hip. and yeah, very yeah, very edgy, very cool. Um, <laughs> I um, I used to do CD reviews and things like that um, for for some of the people listening. CDs are sort of these round, <laughs> shiny discs that used to play music. Um, and, yeah, and I, di- I did a, a stint just of my own bat at the Courier Mail, uh, working in the property section there, and I did a stint at uh, one of the Quest newspapers, which is sort of the, the local newspaper group. But, yeah, sent out all those resumes. I think having a bit of that work experience in, under my belt really assisted. And uh, ended up getting a few callbacks and a bit of soft interest, um, but I ended up having a, uh, an interview with a guy uh, uh, by the name of Chilla Johnston, who um, was kind of what you would expect a a rural um, newspaper editor, you know, to, to be like in those days. Um, this this was sort of the Ooh, late 90s, early 2000s, very sort of gruff, old-school guy, very hard-nosed journalist, had very strong sort of uh, foundations in, in what he considered to be real journalism. And, um, and, and he, was a, he was an interesting guy, and he sort of scared me a lot at first, but <laughs> I think uh, he softened a little bit over my time there. I worked there for about a year and a half, actually, and, um, and that was a really good foundation in, in journalism because... At that time, uh, the newspaper – sorry, the, sorry, I should have said – the newspaper was um, the Gatton Star. And Gatton is a town that's about an hour outside of Brisbane. It's at the base of the Toowoomba Range. And it basically covers an area called the Lockyer Valley, which is a really fertile uh, agricultural area, a lot of fruit and vegetable growing. And so it covered about three different rural shires. And the newspaper, you know, had really exciting articles about things like, you know, tractors and cows and, and, and that sort of stuff. But it, but it was good. Had you had much experience? No, no experience at all. Grew up in a very, I guess, urban environment and was not a country boy by any stretch. Um, my my grandfather on my dad's side did have a, a little bit of land where he grew turf. Um uh, out in the in the sticks in Brisbane, but um, apart from that, not not really. So, um, yeah, I guess um, it was a it was a great foundation because it was a paper that only had two journalists and, then, and an editor, and then it had a couple of marketing people and a, a receptionist out the front. And so it was a very lean operation. It was a free newspaper, got distributed each week, and we were part of uh, what. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what the company's called now, but at the time it was called APN, Australian Provincial News. And um, we were kind of a little sub-paper of the Toowoomba Chronicle, which was the big daily rag in Toowoomba. Um, so we would take all of our, our own photos to accompany the stories. Um, we would write all the copy. Um, and then once a week on a Tuesday afternoon, we would all head up the range to Toowoomba and the two journalists and the editor would sit in a room with uh, a software program called Quark Express and and 
basically paginate the paper, which is doing the layout, writing the headlines. Um, so it was very much a an all hands on deck. You know, I used to drive this car far, far and wide across these three shires, writing writing articles. Um, and yeah, so it just gave me a really strong foundation. I mean, I don't think I'm a great photographer, but it gave me a strong foundation in all the basic tenets of journalism, including writing, editing, sub-editing, proofreading, photography. So really nice deep dive into everything. Um, and uh, got to know, you know, the local, uh, you know, the local coppers, the, <laughs> the local councillors, um, the who's who of, of the local town. You know, you go for a drink on Friday at the bar and you'd, you'd hear, you know, a few ideas for stories and things like that. So it was a really, um, really great grounding in, in all things related to newspaper journalism. Where did that lead? Um, well, it was interesting. It, it led um, probably to me getting a little bit disheartened with journalism, not about the work. I love the work. Um, but I did find the the remuneration pretty ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that I pay more now in tax than I earned in my first year as a journalist. So... Um, yeah, actually, at the time, uh, my, my now wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, she was living in Emerald um, in central Queensland. She was a teacher at, at Marist College there. And uh, so we'd both been out of uni for about a year, worked for about a year, and it was a really strong passion of hers to go and travel to uh, the UK to, to live as a lot of young Australians used to do and probably still do, a um, bit of a rite of passage. And so I I probably jumped on the, the bandwagon of her dream, but in the end, it was you know it was definitely the right thing for me, and I absolutely enjoyed the time. So, after I finished working there, we jumped uh, over to the UK. We lived there for about three years, and I got a job there. Initially, I was doing um, closed caption subtitles for hearing impaired people for the equivalent of, of Sky News um, and and Sky TV and all those various channels. So it was really interesting. Sometimes you do live news and you'd, you'd have to, you'd, you'd sort of tag team with a person who sat beside you. Uh, you each had a keyboard and you would go sentence for sentence with a seven second delay live to air writing out My goodness. subtitles. Um, stressful? It was stressful. I was very lucky. Um, probably the greatest thing I learned in high school um, was uh, in grade nine and 10, I did a touch typewriting class and that really saved my bacon because I had really fast touch typewriting skills and I still do and that that really helped. News was okay. A lot of the time you'd be doing delayed um, telecasts of sports so you'd get a a VHS cassette. I'm, I'm talking about a lot of old technology, aren't I? But you would get a VHS cassette with, with um, you know, like a golf tournament or a fishing show or something. And I think there was a UK government regulation. You had to have a certain amount of closed caption broadcasting, uh, you know, a certain percentage that went to air. And it was also had to be representative of a wide range of interests. So on these sports channels, it wasn't just the Premier League and the rugby. It was, you know, it was it was women's golf. It was... It was uh, trout fishing. It was, it was everything. So you'd get a, a really broad range of things. And um, and that was interesting. Um, darts was probably my favourite because the commentary is very sparse. <laughs> it's sort of like, oh, yes, here he goes. Cracking shot. And that was an easy day <laughs> at the office. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what I what I um, found really difficult was the UK, uh, the Premier League soccer, where you would have about five different commentators and each one had a different, you know, one had like a Scottish accent, one had like a uh, Manchester accent, one had a London accent, one was 
from France or something, and you would have to write each. You would have to assign a different color typeface for each commentator, and so you know you'd have to remember that bloke X was in red and bloke Y was in green and bloke Z was in blue and and kind of keep up and again it was you and another typewriter going sentence for sentence and hitting the colour key every time you typed and I, I I only did that once but I I must have called just an absolutely appalling game it was just it was horrendous <laughs> um, probably my most interesting day there though I think it was my might have been my last day there and it was actually it coincided with the <laughs> the um, the the last flight of the Concorde from either from London to New York or, or the other way around. Um, but there was like a whole... I was doing news all day and there's this rolling telecast of, of the last flight of the Concorde. And that was um, that was really fun, actually. Um, but I didn't last long there. Um, that was a, a bit of a stopgap job while I was trying to find a journalism role. And I went to work for a, a news website. I was the news editor of, of a, a fashion website, of all things, fashion and textile industry mm-hmm. website. Um and that was a gig that lasted me about a year. Um, I then went traveling solidly in North Africa, Europe, and Southeast Asia for about six months. Um, the, the pound sterling was extremely strong back then. So uh, around a year of saving money um, <laughs> in the UK actually allowed us to travel quite well for, um, for, for a six-month period, which was amazing. And then I went back to the UK after that for another year, and that was my first foray out of uh, what we would call journalism and into, I guess, communications um, and, and public relations. And that was something I did for about 10 years after. I worked for a government agency there um, doing media relations, and that led to yeah, a solid decade of, of media relations work, which employed a lot of the skills of journalism, um, but with much better remuneration, which I was I was happy about. <laughs> <laughs> what led you to seek a uni? Yeah, so at the time um, I was I was down in Melbourne. Um, so I grew up in in southeast Queensland, but you know we'd moved around a little bit after coming back to the from the UK to Australia. Um, we decided to go to Melbourne for a few years. Um, we were still pretty young and felt like a, a sort of groovy place to to be for a while and. Um, at the time, I was working for a, uh, a government authority that had just rolled out this uh, smart card ticketing system. Some of the Victorian listeners might know Mikey. Um, it was a really controversial project at the time, and it was a really difficult media relations gig. It was, it was really a, a, a political uh, issue for the government of the day. And so I was the, the media relations lead on that project. And um, I enjoyed the job, but um, my son had just been born, actually. I had a, a three-month-old son uh, by the time we left Melbourne, uh, my oldest son. And, yeah, we were looking to get back to Queensland. And um, I ended up seeing a – actually, I think I'd been involved with a, a few recruiting agencies trying to find roles. And, and uh, there was a lady I'd been dealing with for quite a while, and she tapped me on the shoulder at one point and said um, – there's a, there's a gig at this university. I was like, okay, university, it's different. I'd, I'd um, worked at Australian Catholic University for a little while, again, in a media relations capacity. Um, and, yeah, I guess I, I thought, well, I, I enjoyed my time at, at a university. Um, I could give that a crack again. It's in Queensland. That's great. And so came up to Rockhampton for the interview. And, uh, yeah, really, um, it just sort of was, was the right opportunity at the right time. And, and I came over as the Director of Corporate Communications. Where I met you, Priscilla. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> 
And and how's time been since you've you've been here? I mean, mm. how have you progressed in your career? Yeah, so um, around 2013, I actually segued into the role of director of student experience, which I've been in ever since, and and that was, I guess. Um, an opportunity that arose as part of a, a bit of reorganisation of, of the university. Um, I think for me it was it was a bit of a dive into the unknown. Um, I was at the stage of my career where I'd done a fair bit of management and probably the last three of my communications roles had been less about frontline communication and more about managing teams that worked in communication. And I think I'd developed a bit of a transferable skill set there where it was less about being a practitioner and more about being a leader or being a manager. Um, so for me, the the managerial side, I guess, was, was fairly uh, familiar, but the subject matter around student experience was, was fairly new. I mean, as we've talked about, I've been on the receiving end of, of a quote-unquote student experience, um, but... I hadn't worked in that field um, extensively. Um, I think my communications background helped, though. I think ultimately um, good communication facilitates a good student experience, and it's kind of the foundation of a lot of what we do. So that was a nice transferable skill. But, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a steep learning curve and one that I feel like I'm a bit of an old hand at now, but certainly um, six years ago that wasn't the case. So can you tell us a little bit more about your day-to-day role? Yeah, um, what I do like about this role is that no two days are the same and, um, you know, I do have such amazing teams. I've got people who really do care about the experience of students, about the welfare of students, um, people who are really deeply empathetic about how our students navigate their way through university. I feel really blessed to to be able to, to work with people like that. Um, you know, my... my the, the spectrum of, of my work tasks or my day can really run from the quite mundane to the really quite uh, interesting. And sometimes we we work in some really high-stakes situations. Um, I would probably say that as a rule of thumb, about 10% of our students occupy about 90% of, of my time. So um, obviously there is the, you know, the meeting with staff to, to track on how different pieces of work are going, how different um, teams are performing, which is kind of the, you know, the routine management stuff. Um, but I do get the opportunity to, to delve a bit more deeply into individual student cases with different members of staff, whether that's our, our counselling team, whether that's our international student support team, whether that's our Indigenous student support team, um, to really facilitate good outcomes for students who might be in precarious situations. And for some students, you know, these are really high stakes things for them. It could be mental health emergencies. It could be um, visa issues for international students. Um, it could be students who are at a high risk of failure. It could be students who are in difficult situations. And and to find uh, your way through those things and to produce a good outcome is, is immensely satisfying. It's... Um, I've been involved in some cases that were incredibly high stakes with our students and they are not the norm at all. They are very much edge cases, but those edge cases are really important and it's really important that we help those students navigate through those those situations. So obviously I'm speaking a little bit guardedly. It's it's These are all quite sensitive uh, issues most of the time, but yeah, it is just really immensely satisfying to, to see a student come out the other end of a of a poor situation or a poor set of circumstances and really achieve their educational goals. Um, How well is the university equipped to cater to those students? I think we're actually really well equipped to cater to it. I, I think 
We're a university by virtue of geography that services a student demographic that is what you know the government would call quote-unquote non-traditional. It's, um, it's a demographic of people who um, in many cases have no prior generational experience of going to university or, or post-secondary education. It's a generation of, uh, sorry, it's a group of people who, um, uh, you know, may come from rural and remote backgrounds, um, uh, are overwhelmingly from low socioeconomic status um, areas. And so people in those demographics, uh, it's a generalisation, but they are probably more susceptible to encounter some of the hurdles or the roadblocks that, that people can encounter on their way through education. So I think the university... Has long uh, has long grappled with that, and, and has many years of experience in, in assisting students um, who are in those circumstances. And um, by virtue of that, I think we've really honed our ability to to service the needs of those students. Um, I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, think that students in those predicaments are you know helpless or always in need of support. Um, some of them are, are amazing individuals who, you know, rise above their circumstances to really achieve highly. Um, but, you know, there are students who slip through the cracks or are in danger of slipping through the cracks. And I think the university has many years of experience in assisting those students. And um, because of that, we've really sharpened our ability to to deal with them and to assist them. So I think we do really well. I think we punch well above our weight in terms of the higher education sector and the tertiary sector. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think we've got too many issues there. Um, we could always use more people, <laughs> but I think that's a universal dilemma. How do scholarships and, and um, emergency grants and things like mm. that um, play into it? Oh, look, I think for some students um, it's the difference between having food in the fridge this week or not, to be honest. Um, you know, our students come from diverse circumstances. Um, some will never have need of a scholarship or a financial grant. Um, but we do have um, an emergency assistance uh, grant and that's available to students um, who are really in dire circumstances where you know, the money's run out and it will be a massive barrier to their continued study if they don't get a lifeline of financial assistance. And that is always oversubscribed, which you know, is, is uh, somewhat disheartening, um, but it is great to know that we have that lifeline there. Um, we've got a range of scholarships available. Some of them are merit-based. Some of them are, are a bit more catered to certain groups of students. Um, and, you know, I definitely encourage students to check out their options. Um, there's, there's a plethora of options. But that lifeline um, has, has come in handy for a lot of our students, and I'm really happy about that. Universities don't have an endless um, financial resource, so it, I suppose it's important that... Um companies and mm. organisations get behind scholarships as well. How important is that to the Look, university? I, I, think, I think it's got a reciprocal benefit, to be honest. I, I think that companies, you know, by um, extending philanthropic support to universities in the form of student grants, student scholarships, um, they're not only being good corporate citizens, I really think that they are um, they're building the pipeline of talent for, for you know, their own workforce um, because particularly at a university like CQU where you do have people um, who maybe have an added layer of complexity or difficulty attached to their, their lives and therefore their studies, um, you, really, you really don't know what talented person um, 
is is going to drop off the radar um, or drop out of university because of insurmountable odds. And I think if companies can help to preserve the longevity of those students and, and their studies and to help them get through, um, you know, they never know what talented individual they might, uh, they might you know, help to push through. They might be the difference that, that's needed to get that student through. And, and I think, um, you know, they can go on to do great things. So I think companies really, by engaging in um, philanthropy, they are actually shoring up their own futures. Is there any new initiatives coming out of your area at the moment that you might want to tell us about? Yeah, look, um, it's actually a really exciting time. We're we're delving into um, a bit of a renewal of our service model. And the idea behind that, um, the kernel of it actually came from a trip to Canada that I made earlier this year. I was really lucky to be chosen by ANSA, which is the Australian New Zealand Student Services Association, to be their Australian New Zealand delegate for um, the big uh, Canadian Conference of Student Services Practitioners, which is a massive event, about 800 people um, over three days, and learnt a hell of a lot, made some really good connections. But there was a couple of presentations that really stuck with me, and they were all about um, a more efficient model of service delivery, which catered to the very unique needs of each student, um, but did so in a really efficient way that I guess leveraged, um, you know, the the ability of self-help resources to cater for certain groups of students, the ability of very intensive um, uh, practitioner-led services to cater for another group of students and everything in between. And the idea of having a catalogue of services that can cater to a broad range of needs um, that puts resources to the places where they're needed most. Um, and that really stuck with me. I was really excited to come back to Australia and talk to the team about that. And, um, yeah, so we're now going down the track of implementing that that program of work. And, and that's going to be um, probably a, a few months in the making, but we're, we're well on the way as, as far as planning goes. Um, we're also um, right into uh, an overhaul of our... Um, our knowledge base, which is basically the repository of all information that students and staff need to to learn, and it really is going to form the backbone of our service going forward. So um, there's a there's a bit of uh, investment, um, particularly in terms of time and, and resource, into into building out those programs of work over the next year, and I think it will actually bring about a really positive step change for how we deliver our services to students. Awesome. When you're not so busy at CQ Uni, I think um, you must be pretty busy being dad. Can you tell us what life's like outside <laughs> of the work environment? Yeah, um, yeah, life's great outside of the work environment, actually. I, I have um, uh, very happily married uh, with four young children. Um, they're all boys, and uh, we actually had our boys quite close together. So my oldest is uh, eight, and he's only 19 months older than his twin brother's. And then there's about a three-month gap with our, our youngest. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's quite hectic, but it's it's joyful at the same time. Um, the kids are really heavily occupied. Um, you know, they are, they're always uh, doing something, whether it's uh, soccer, football, uh, whether it's tennis, whether it's swimming, whether it's playing the keyboard. So 
Um, my oldest has just taken up the saxophone, so uh, so that's uh, yeah. That I've, I've invested in a set of earplugs. No, I'm only kidding. He's, he's really good. Um, so yeah, look, it, it's we're very into the extracurricular stuff, keep him out of trouble, and um, and I love it. And I, I think you know I learn something new every day um, from them uh, about how to parent, about myself, um, and do you see yourself in them? Yeah, I do actually. It's interesting. Uh, what I love about parenting is um, uh, you know you, you can see the best traits of you and your partner and the children um, you can, sometimes you can see your, your worst traits as well but you know certainly the kids I hope are an amalgamation of, of the best of the both of us and um, that's it's really beautiful to see do you get any time for yourself any hobbies yeah I um, the, the last few years, I've I've been uh, hitting up the gym quite frequently. Um, I used to be a runner, um, and that was good. And I've I've even done half marathons and things like that. But um, I uh, I actually heard a podcast that talked about how rapidly men over the age of forty lose their muscle mass, and I thought, gee, I'm already pretty scrawny. I don't have much to lose. So I've kind of switched up from aerobic exercise to more uh, gym-based exercise. I still do a little bit of running, but that's um, that is just a nice uh, time for myself. Where usually it's it's early in the morning, about five in the morning, and I just am by myself music blaring and I can just zone out and if I'm lifting heavy enough the pain is is enough that I don't have to think about anything other than the pain that I'm currently in so it takes work and any other stresses out of the picture um but I'm a yeah I'm a huge music fan love my music always listening to music a few podcasts too and um yeah love love the outdoors love an active lifestyle um we go camping a lot we're about to go camping in a couple of weeks time which is great um so just love sort of pitching the tent, um, lighting an open fire if we can and and just getting into nature for a few days, hopefully outside of mobile reception and not getting bothered by anybody. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Chris. It's been enlightening. Yeah, thanks, Priscilla. I appreciate the time. No worries. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.